protesters always say the revolution must succeed. So I'm going to say this in Burmese for them. Thank you, Dennis. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. And, well, guess what? That does wrap it up for another edition of Flashpoints. This is your daily investigative news magazine on the People's Radio Network. That's Pacifica Radio. We're coming out of the San Francisco Bay Area right at you every day. Stay tuned. wraps it up for another edition of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Our roving producer and producer of Flashpoints in Espanol is Miguel Gavilan Molina. Our technical director is Mike Biggs. For more information about the show, to listen to or download archived episodes, log on to flashpoints.net or visit our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com forward slash flashpoints. For questions or comments about Flashpoints, you can contact Dennis at DennisJBernstein at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Jeremy Scahill, author of Dirty Wars, and you're listening to KBOO, Portland, 90.7. You can follow KBOO on all your social media platforms. Just look for KBOO on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Get access to our new content and news, as well as special offers and contests. Like and share your favorite community radio station, KBOO. Welcome to Bookwaves. I'm Richard Walensky. Larry McMurtry, the regional novelist who became an iconic American literary figure, died of congestive heart failure at the age of 84 on March 25, 2021. The author of such classic novels as Lonesome Dove, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, The Last Picture Show, Terms of Endearment, and Desert Rose, he also wrote over 30 screenplays many of them in collaboration with Diana Osana, with whom he lived for several decades. Rarely one to go on a book tour, Larry McMurtry, along with Diana Osana, showed up at the KPFA studios to publicize their collaborative novel, Pretty Boy Floyd, and it was there on October 13, 1994, that Richard A. Lupoff and I had a chance to talk with Larry McMurtry about his career. Referring to Lonesome Dove sort of running rampant through American culture. Um, well, it obviously has. It strikes me that, that Lonesome Dove was perhaps the, the ultimate and perfect distillation of a story that's, that was already in American culture. Uh, the, the, the great uh, cattle drive of the 19th century is, is one of our, our archetypal images. Every American kid, at least of your generation and mine, grew up on Saturday matinees about this. Well, yeah, but I would draw a little bit of a distinction. The cattle drive, indeed, is a, is, is a mythic thing. It has not been treated in fiction to any extent. It's been treated only briefly in three or four decent good books in autobiography, Andy Adams and Teddy Blue and Charles Goodnight. 
but it has been treated a lot on the screen uh, in, in a couple of uh, classic movies, particularly The Long Trail, which was John Ford's silent movie dealing with the cattle drives, and of course in Red River. Uh, those are the, those are the two major cattle drive movies before Lonesome Dove. You have to consider that there are two archetypes: the imaginative literature uh, or cinema of the American West. There's the cowboy and there's the gunfighter. Overall, the gunfighter has dominated. First place, it's closer to us in time. It lasted longer. The cattle drives were a very brief phenomenon. They occurred because there was because the railroads weren't there yet. They lasted one generation. But out of that one generation came the myth of the cowboy. Now, succeeding the myth of the cowboy was the myth of the gunfighter because the cowboy operated in a frontier situation in which there was a, a, a lot of violence. Movie by movie, there's probably a thousand more gunfighter movies than there are trail driving movies. There are only three or four good trail driving movies. Uh, you, you have dealt with this kind of material re- repeatedly uh, I'm thinking in particular of a book called Anything for Billy, which is a sort of wonderful bunking, debunking of um, uh, pop culture, pop literature, and the reality of the West. Well, Anything for Billy is simply a parody of a dime novel. Now, it's unfortunate in a way that I did that because nobody in modern times has ever read a dime novel. They read pulp versions of dime novels. Louis L'Amour was a dime novelist, basically, and so he's and Ernest Haycox and, and the Western writers of the 30s and 40s. Max Brand, uh, uh, Frederick Faust was his real name. I wrote a parody of a dime novel. It's a slight thing, so far as I'm concerned. It was fun to do. It's fun to do a parody, but it's also limited. Do you see yourself as as a Western writer in quotation marks? A, mm-hmm. a Western writer. No, I'm a writer who grew up in the West. I'm not a writer of Westerns, N- not in the, in, the, in the commonly understood sense of the term. In looking over your entire career, Larry McMurtry, and comparing it to Pretty Boy Floyd, before we went on the air, you admitted that, that this book came about because someone approached you, and it holds pretty close to the facts. Yet it seems that many of the themes, the relationship of myth and reality, the decline of the West, uh, initiation into manhood, all pop up again, and isolation, all themes from all of your novels, all pop up in this in very, very strong doses, it, it, almost as if it's a natural for you anyway. Well, I think what pops up, uh, you know, Diana and I have talked about this quite a bit on our book tour, is the region. I mean, the region and the times and the tone of life, the styles of life that that existed in the Midwest. This is a Midwestern story. The Last Picture Show is a Midwestern story. It's not a Western story. Uh, It's small-town Midwest, and that's what we have in common as writers and as people. That's what we think made us qualified to write the story because we didn't have to research the way people live in in the small-town Midwest. And Lonesome Dove 2 came about because of a film assignment, you know. It was written in 1971, a version of it, for John Wayne, James Stewart, and Henry Fonda, just as a movie assignment. Now, it wasn't a trail-driving story at that time, but it was a story about three guys who, were hav- who had grown up together in the golden days of the, of the Great West who were having a last adventure. What was common 
of the two projects is the last adventure, not the cattle drive necessarily. They were Texas Rangers who were getting up in years, and they they tried something that didn't work. It wasn't a trail drive, but it was an adventure. But I what I what I want the point I want to make I think is that out of sheer accident, the fact that someone in Hollywood calls you up and asks you to write a screenplay about Pretty Boy Floyd or about Three Texas Rangers or just a movie for John Wayne and James Stewart and Henry Fonda or just a movie for Brad Pitt or Tom Cruise, because if you're you know if as a serious writer you have certain concerns that do persist uh, in, in your fiction. Uh, you take this assignment and you carry it back to where you want it and then you go forward with it. But you wouldn't do that if it was, it, it didn't start with me, it started with them. It didn't start with us, it started with them. But it wouldn't have occurred to us to write that story, but once it, once it was presented to us and offered it to us, we found, we think, something genuine in it that worked for us. <laughs> there are uh, any number of real people in in the book. Uh, of, of course, in addition to uh, uh, Charlie Floyd himself, J. Edgar Hoover, of course, is a fascinating, fascinating figure on the stage of the twentieth century. The way his image has evolved over the years, both before and since his death. What are your feelings about Hoover? He was a horrible man. Very, very horrible man. I saw him once. I never actually spoke to him, but I did see him sitting in a limousine with Richard Nixon at some point when I first came to Washington. And uh, and I, I work in uh, my my Cadillac Jack trade uh, of being an auction scout right under the edifice that was built to him, one of the ugliest public buildings in the world, only equaled by public buildings built by Saddam Hussein in Iran. <laughs> he was a dreadful man, but he wasn't a stupid man. And the invention of the public enemies list as a publicity tool and as a fundraising tool, which was one of the things that led to the downfall of Charles Arthur Floyd, who after all was just a country bank robber, robbing little banks in Oklahoma and Missouri mostly, was very clever. Uh, you also go somewhat into the relationship between Melvin Purvis and J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, it was well known that the director didn't want anyone getting better headlines than he got. You know, he created uh, an institution after in his own image, and he controlled it for a very, very, very long time. But of course, Melvin Purvis was there at the right time in a way, but the wrong time in a way, because the whole generation of outlaws were wiped out within seven-month period, from Bonnie and Clyde, Dillinger, Pretty Boy, Babyface Nelson, and the Barkers. All between May of, of May of '34 and January of '35, and uh, he got too much attention. There's a wonderful, wonderful piece of humorous byplay in Pretty Boy Floyd uh, concerning Purvis's uh, panic lest he be photographed without a fedora, because the chief, uh, the director, right, always referred to as almost like mm -hmm. Mein Führer, <laughs> right. the director, only wants us to be photographed wearing a fedora. Is this historically accurate? Yeah, it is. J. Edgar Hoover created an image of the G-Man. Uh, he definitely, it was, it was thought out. It was not casual. Uh, it, was, it continues to this day. The children of Hoover, children of the director, are still there, the FBI. I, mean, I, I witnessed a wonderful a bit of comic byplay in my book bookshop in Washington when I had to report some books that were stolen from a, from the Smithsonian Institute 
between an old generation Hoover type FBI man who was at that time running security for the Smithsonian and a young blue jean clad, long haired, very flashy, high top boots, young lady FBI person from a new era and the clash of styles was was extremely sharp. Richard Walensky. Pretty Boy Floyd never tried to do anything to become a myth. Myth versus reality, you can't actually create a myth for yourself, or can you? It's actually that you can't get rid of a myth. We think what we've done in Pretty Boy is show the dark side of a criminal's life. Uh, Charlie Floyd was neither all good nor all bad. A lot of this book is taken up with the pain that his actions caused his family, simply the people that were closest to him. Uh, We don't think it's a glamorized picture of an outlaw at all. We show how sad his wife was, how sad his mother was, how sad his brother was, his girlfriend, all the people that truly cared about him and were loyal to him. And yet I did a lot of that in Lonesome Dove, too. You know, it's a violent, violent book. People get killed, people get trashed, uh, people suffer. And yet it's it's taken as myth. It doesn't demythicize the American West. It reinforces the myth. And I don't know. I'm, I'm still reflecting on that one. I don't know what you do about that. As the book progresses, at the beginning, Charlie was just a dumb hick who wound up getting into trouble. By the end, whether he wants to or not, at least this is my reading, he becomes the great gentleman bandit that the myth says he is. That's true. Perhaps Dr. Jung was right. Perhaps there are archetypes so powerful uh, that you c- that if you go near them, that they suck you in to some extent. Bandits are romanticized. Robin Hood, you know, the, the, in, in many, many cultures, not just in American popular culture are they romanticized. In European popular culture, they're romanticized. In Asian popular culture, they're romanticized. In South American popular culture, they're romanticized. If you go near a bandit, you practically can't avoid some sense of the romantic. Ma Ash, Lulu, is a fascinating character, a, a madam housekeeper with a, an interesting past. Is she real? She had two sons who were killed in a gangland fashion, and Charlie got the blame part, although it's very, very, very unlikely that he had anything to do with it. One of the, her sons were, was in, initially involved with Beulah Baird. Those things are true. One more character, speaking of Ma Ash, a character I think at least has the best name I have read <laughs> in the past 40 or 50 years, is Whizbang Red. Is she based on a real person? All we had of Whizbang Red is the name, and we knew that she was a whore. And so we invented her. We don't know much about her. I mean, nobody knows much about her. She was an oil field whore that's now lost underneath the sands of time. Charlie and Ruby's son, Dempsey Floyd, was he real? He lives in Southern California, we believe. There's a good biography by a, an Oklahoma journalist named Michael Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S. And I would say that we, because Charlie does have relatives that still live, and probably in all probability his son, Dempsey, is still alive, we try to be respectful of that fact. We haven't been casual, although we will change things when we need to. For the sake of fiction, we don't think we've changed the characters very much, only, only incidental facts. Well, in fact, I was very, very taken with the domestic scenes of Charlie and Ruby and Dempsey, uh, there's another point very near the end of the book. It's a sort of a meditation by Ruby, Mrs. Floyd, uh, in, in which she thinks that Charlie Floyd, there are really two Charlie Floyds. 
the wonderful loving husband and father and the wild living bandit and if only the one could melt into the other uh, is this your feeling about about Charlie Floyd as well? We think what we've we've tried to do here uh, is examine in a dramatic way, in a novelistic way, the irreconcilable elements of personality uh, within one person, or within one family, or within one within one time and within one place. You know, he had both sides. We're not saying he was all good. He did bad things. He he was not by nature a killer. But he did put himself in situations in which it was kill or be killed, and in those situations he killed, he survived. He did have a, a, a real domestic side, and he, he had the capacity to be very happy in, domest in his domestic relations. He was very happy with his wife and child when he was with them. He also had the rake and the ramblers, and so life evolved, which soon got beyond his control. You're listening to an October 13, 1994 interview with the late Larry McMurtry, who died on March 25, 2021, at the age of 84. It was recorded in the studios of KPFA while he was on tour for the novel Pretty Boy Floyd. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. I'm Richard Walensky on Bookwaves. This book, Pretty Boy Floyd, it strikes me as a reader as being a profoundly sad story about a profoundly sad man living in a very hard time and place. And yet there are moments of, of almost hysteric, manic funniness to it, uh, one of which is the first encounter between Charlie Floyd and Birdwell. The scene where they try to rob, this is the scene which occurs in a bank in Earlsboro, Oklahoma. Yes. Uh, where two bandits, George Birdwell and Charlie Floyd, arrive at the same moment to rob the same bank. I think this has occurred in the history of bank robbing. It didn't occur to Charles Arthur Floyd and George Birdwell, but we, we, we picked it up from some anecdotal source at some point, and we invented, and we, invented we put them together. What a, what a great way for two outlaws to become sidekicks was to try to rob the same bank at the same time. I'd like to say something to the comment about it being sad. I want to point to a couple of some what, what we think are literary antecedents, uh, our, our fathers in this enterprise in a way, and that a couple of other, other uh, fine Midwestern writers, Theodore Dreiser and Sherwood Anderson, whose works have the same kind of sadness, uh, the sadness of sort of lonely people in these isolated little towns in, in the vastness of the Midwest, and particular to Dreiser, particularly to Dreiser, who's, who's meant a whole lot to me as a writer. And I think in Dreiser, in books like Sister Carrie and, uh, and an, American, uh, an American Tragedy, you get the sense of you take one step too far and you can never get back. Now, this doesn't have to be always set in the context of crime. It doesn't have to be the man robbing the safe because the safe door swings shut in Sister Carrie doesn't have to be the girl, the pregnant girl getting drowned in an American tragedy. But there is an inevitability that catches all of us, not just criminals, you know. We all of us, at, most of us at one point or another will ask, how did we get here? What, why didn't I turn left instead of turning right? Why didn't I let that girl go by or that guy go by or something like that? There are moments in life that just take you a little too far and how you get back is a haunting question. And it's a very good question for fiction writers to, to probe. 
maybe everybody in the world has moments moments like, like that. Uh, another another author I'd like you to comment on who's in a sense just whole galaxies away from the people we Sherwood Anderson and Theodore Dreiser and Larry McMurtry and in another way I think there's a strange relevance and that is Jim Thompson. Well I can't say much because I've never read a book by Jim Thompson. A writer I have read of the same school, you know, there was, there, there's a school of the hard-bitten newspaper man novelist, the one that I know best. I've never read Jim Thompson, but I have read Horace McCoy, you know, No Pockets in a Shroud. Yeah, there's, uh, there's some connection because these guys were Midwestern newspaper men who, who trod, you know, who traveled many of the same roads as Charlie Floyd and George Birdwell. A few more questions I, w I would like to ask. Larry McMurtry, this involves your whole career. Um, Thalia, the town of your early novels based on Archer City, at the beginning seems to be kind of very rough-hewn, and you don't seem to have much sympathy for it. As time goes on, the sympathy grows. In that sense, is Salisaw, which has become very sympathetic, is, is that uh, kind of the, the descendant of, of Thalia in a way? Sure, I, I suppose so. Uh, any small town in the Midwest could be Thalia or could be Salisaw, you know. The reason that they can go there and make movies like The Last Picture Show without changing anything is because emotionally and stylistic, nothing has changed. The movement that I see my fiction having taken, and it's not chronological as the books were published, but it's chronological as the history happened, was uh, over the course of my long, fairly long career, I've considered the American Midwest and the American Southwest from frontier times, from the time of the trail drives, going back all the way through the growth of the small towns and the growth of the great cities. And so I've got frontier novels, country novels, ranch novels, small town novels, and urban novels. And that seems to me to be natural because I've had the time, I've lived long enough and I've witnessed in my own lifetime the, the, the movement away from the home place into the small town and then away from the small town into the cities. I've seen the small towns dry up as the best blood was sucked out of them into Houston or Dallas or Los Angeles or, or, you know, or St. Louis or, or Kansas City. I just think that's natural. Are we living in better times now, do you think, than we were in the 30s? Or do you have to go back and say, well, we th there was something about the frontier? I, I am not uh, a millennialist. I am not a believer in the golden age. I think that all times are hard, each in their own particular way. And, and yet I also think that all times are good. I, I wouldn't have blasted myself on the frontier, <laughs> I don't think. I'm too luxury-loving. I like, I like the swank hotels and big bathtubs and lots of hot water and... and modern comfort. Would you have enjoyed being around the time of the uh, the dime novelists? And would you have written real dime novels, do you think? I wouldn't have enjoyed it, and I doubt I would have been a writer. <laughs> I doubt I would have lived long enough. <laughs> I would have collapsed. We were chatting, that is, uh, Richard Walensky and I were chatting recently with John Gregory Dunn, uh, a, a, a taping a program for uh, this series. And the subject came up in that discussion of the the archetypal American small town. Dunn suggested that that was itself an invention of fiction. And I find myself contrasting that archetypal small town, which we have been taught 
to love and to mourn the departure of with the portrayal of Salisaw and other such places in your works. Which is the real American small town? Well, I mean, that's a weird question um, because obviously there are real small towns that millions of Americans have grown up with. But once one is written about in a novel, then it's a small town in fiction. And I don't know what to make of it. A small town in fiction is a small town in fiction. That's not to say there aren't real small towns. Now, the the small town can, of course, also be uh, romanticized. I mean, in, in you can say that we just got through writing, Diana and I, this, this screenplay, the little rough draft screenplay for Father Knows Best. Is that a romantic idol? Is that a realistic picture of domestic life? I never saw Father Knows Best because I didn't have television when it was on. But just in casually mentioning to friends that we've been working on Father Knows Best, we've, we've been gre- it's, it's been greeted with horror. So many people needed that show, in a sense, uh, as an emotional support. Well, do you see any connection between the mythos of the 50s home life and the kind of mythos in books like Lonesome Dove, or are they so totally different that they're, they're coming at you from completely different universes? I see the similarities that I see, and I have to say that although I've seen six episodes of Father Moses, I've never seen the six episodes of Lonesome Dove. I haven't seen Lonesome Dove, the miniseries at all. I think that the, the theme that unites them is is the need for family. Now, the cowboys and the Hat Creek outfit became a kind of family and supported one another in a kind of way, and there was the there was the daddy Captain Call, and there was, in a way, the mother Gus, or there was the whore mother, or whatever you want to have. In any case, you had some sort of family here as these guys moved up the trail. There's no doubt that the human animal has a need for a supportive family, for feeling that there's a family there that they can draw on, whether it's in Father Knows Best, whether it's in the Hat Creek Outfit or what. That's the common thing. In view of of so much that, that I've heard you say today, if the entire corpus of Larry McMurtry's work were to be collapsed into a single word, would that word be family? No, I have no idea what it would be. If I had to reduce my work to one word, it would be imagination, I think. It wouldn't be family. In books like Last Picture Show or films like Falling from Grace or Montana, dysfunction rather than functional families seem to be uh, in the ascendant there, and yet Father Knows Best, at least from my recollection, was a functional family, not dysfunctional. Well, there's the famous first sentence of Anna Karenina, Happy families are all alike. Unhappy families are unhappy each in, in, in their own way. But I think probably most families from within feel at least partially dysfunctional. They don't feel this is not par- this is not a paradise of family solidarity. This is a, a, a world. I mean, a, a, a family situation filled with tension and doubt and uh, m- moments of terrific happiness and love and moments of terrific unhappiness and and discouragement. Diana's been reading the last picture show, and I've glanced at it a time or two, and it occurred to me something that I'd totally forgotten, which is that the two main boys within it are fatherless, in essence, fatherless. Sonny's father is is there somewhere, but he's a a small-town drug addict, and and Duane's father is just not there. He's just not there. So there's no father in that book, except Sam the Lion, the surrogate father. 
How have you responded internally, I'm, I'm thinking of your own feelings, not your conduct, to your uh, relative uh, uh, fame and success in American literature versus your, your former self-image? I, say, I came across in one essay that you used to have a sweatshirt that said, minor regional novelist. You obviously far transcended that. No, I still think of myself as a minor regional novelist. Uh, I think it's very foolish to think of yourself as anything else. You know, while you're alive, that's a judgment for someone else to make centuries from now or 50 years from now or 100 years from now. I don't know. Uh, Literary success in America is a very uh, fragmented um, moment-to-moment thing. It's kind of like athletic success. One year you're good and the next year you're not. We were just we just got our uh, we just got reviewed by the New York Times Book Review this week. The review hit us uh, hit us in the belly while we were up in Seattle trying to gather ourselves for another day of touring. And uh, what measure do you use to judge in the bookstores? The measure that I use that is most sustaining to me is that there are people there who've actually been touched by the books and who enjoy them. Mm-hmm. It's the readers that you touch that, you know, most writers. One of the one of the good parts about a book tour is that most writers, unlike performers, have no sense of audience response at all. You know, the book doesn't even get published until a year after you've finished it, which is probably a year after you've really finished it emotionally, and it may be years and years and years before you ever get any one little lonely reader coming up to you and saying something nice about the book. So a book tour is inspiriting in that sense. It belongs to us while we're writing it, and then there is an act of passing that occurs when you publish the book. Do you feel that same way about a, a motion picture? Well, see, that's why I am not possessive about motion pictures made from my works and don't care that Lonesome Dove has this 21-episode series or that maybe it's good or there's a bad sequel called Return to Lonesome Dove. It has stopped being mine. Uh, it has stopped being mine in any internal and meaningful way. I'm very happy if good films are made from these books, and good films have been made from my books. But in a way, it just doesn't touch me. You know, I'm, I've gone on. I've gone on nine books past Lonesome Dove. I can't be, be worrying about it. You've been listening to a 1994 interview with the late Larry McMurtry, author of Lonesome Dove and other novels, while he was on tour for the novel Pretty Boy Floyd. Neither Pretty Boy Floyd nor Father Knows Best were ever filmed. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff, and I'm Richard Walensky on Bookwaves. Bookwaves is produced by Richard Walensky in the studios of KPFA Pacifica Radio in Berkeley, California. Andy Wawa looks a scream and him on my wall. My name's Joseph Gallivan, and you're listening to our focus on KBOO Portland. My guest this week is Julia Dolan. She is the minor white curator of photography at the Portland Art Museum, and she's here to talk about Ansel Adams in our time a show about the photographer Ansel Adams, which opens to members on April 28th and to the general public on May the 5th by timed ticket. And it closes August 1st, 2021.
Thanks very much for doing Art Focus by Zoom, Julia. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, welcome back to the show. You always give us a great insight into what you're up to at the museum and the photography department. And this 